0: From Social Service I am Zheng Yao. Today, we are joined by Professors Sharon George and Donald Low to talk about their best-selling book, PAP VPAP: The Party's Struggle to Adapt to a Changing Singapore. We will discuss the balance between elite governance and democratic deliberation, the phenomena of elite reproduction and overproduction, and how the book can be a starting point for political and policy conversations in Singapore. Information on how to purchase the book or the audiobook is available in the podcast description. I wanted to start from the final book chapter of the book where the both of you write and speak to and kind of like aspirational balance for the ruling PAP, and you wrote, and I quote, "Um, one of the main sources of Singapore's competitive advantage is a high-capacity, high-performing public administration able to take a long view. You add, this system of elite governance led by experts and technocrats based on evidence and reason deserves public support, but an ideology of self-serving elitism does not. You go on to add, to prevent the former from turning into the latter, it is necessary to balance even-temper elite governance with democratic deliberation and accountability, end quote. So I was running, starting from the end, uh, could I first invite you to kind of explain this balance between elite governance and democratic deliberation?
1: Yeah, okay. Thanks very much, Junyao, uh, for, for that question. Maybe I'll, I'll take a stab at it and uh, Charian can add on. Because I think I maybe I wrote that part of that quote. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so maybe one way to think about it is uh, from through the lens of history, right? So in in developed countries in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you had a kind of combination of democracy and governments led by right, uh, elites, right? Uh, so you might call that uh, a system of Keynesian social democracy. Uh, then I think around... Uh, the 80's and especially from the 90s as a result of globalization uh, and the complexities that globalization uh, involves uh, populations were less and less uh, involved in democratic decision making uh, uh, in, in, in advanced democracies and you had the a, a sort of retreat of democracy but the rise of uh, technocracy that would help manage the complexity that globalization creates. So you yeah, have a kind of combination of complexity and technocracy, a kind of Davos elitism, or you know the Br- Brussels elites that uh, the Brexiteers uh, rail against. Uh, and then, of course, in the last five years or so, you've seen the rise of this, this reaction against uh, that Davos elitism, that uh, meritocratic elitism. Uh, and what you see in Trump's America, or Trump's dystopia, is a combination of Uh, a resurgence of democracy in some ways, right? Uh, But with a very simplistic response to the still complex world uh, that we live in. Uh, So I think what we really want, and and what Singapore has managed to do thus far is to resist that that, overly strong and overly demanding democracy, right? the, The PAP has been able to bottle up democracy as it were. So in many ways, we are a combination of technocracy and complexity. But that cannot last, right That is not sustainable. As we see in Trump's uh, dystopia, as we see in many parts of the developed world, uh, democracies tend to eventually rebel against the fact that it is cut off cut off from uh, 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 engagement and decision making. And so I think the way, look, the way I see it is you know, of course we want to we, we, want, we cherish the meritocratic elitism or meritocratic technocracy that we have but carried too far, it will create, its, it sows the seeds of its own destruction. Mm-hmm. right? It sows the seeds of its own demise. And what we're really calling for uh, when we say elite governance needs to be tempered uh, by democratic deliberation is that for, it's for our technocratic elites and for the PAP to deliberately create uh, dem- more democratic mechanisms and processes uh, to check, to scrutinize, to hold itself accountable. Uh, so so that's the balance we see because if we, if if that balance is not struck, what you have is a reaction against eventually a reaction against uh, uh, elitism, a populist uprising as we've seen in many parts of the democratic world.
2: If I could add to that uh, from political science, uh, you know, within American political theory, uh, you know, the uh, elite. Democracy is a particular strand within democratic thinking that, of course, within the American context or within the liberal democratic context is regarded as uh, highly conservative. It's associated with uh, uh, Walter Lippmann in the 1920s and much later. Uh, Joseph Schumpeter, uh, Samuel Huntington, who were alarmed at the rise of uh, excessive participation in politics in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, And they argued, uh, you know, in a very realist fashion that, look, you know, frankly, politics is too complex for the common man. They simply will not have the the bandwidth to to, uh, cope with that kind of responsibility. Uh, and therefore uh, the day to day running of government really has to be left to uh, to elites number one and in fact uh, we shouldn't try too hard to engender popular participation uh, and rightly uh, you know condemned uh, you know th- this view has been rightly uh, condemned as being far too conservative yeah um but even uh, having, having said that um as conservative as it is the the uh, strand of elite democracy within democratic theory, uh, always um, was expressed in competitive terms, right? It, it never uh, veered towards autocracy where uh, you only had one party rule, for example. Uh, so in in uh, the Singapore context, uh, elite democracy, which... Uh, is very conservative from the uh, from a liberal democratic perspective. Is actually quite an advance for Singapore, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it, it's much more uh, competitive than what we have now. Um, of course, we the the, the dangers of uh, the elite ossifying into a very self-serving autocracy, uh, omnipresent. Which is why uh, we really do, of course, need to. Uh, work harder at uh, promoting citizen participation mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the model of uh, democratic
0: deliberation. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was wondering if I could push back against that first pillar, right? Whether we can. Um, even kind of take for granted that elite governance is something that will persist and continue. And um, I I say that because the both of you allude to how elite governance is anchored by both technocracy and meritocracy. But it seems like a potential challenge that we are facing that's been... um, that's been mooted is that there's a lack of academic and social economic diversity amongst these elites. So we have technocrats, you know, some of them are my peers and, um, and friends. We are educated in the same schools. We have very similar parental familiar backgrounds. We spend our entire lives in the same class. And to me, that has implications not just for whether you can be efficient, but how we perceive issues of poverty and inequality. So in pushing back against that first pillar, first of all, is that even a concern? And if that's concern, um, even before we talk about that balance, should, is that something that we need to address? Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, of course yeah. it's a very real concern, which is why uh, it needs to be moderated by um, a commitment to competition, right? Uh, uh, protecting the the, uh, uh, the the right of, of uh, counter elites to contest the the elites in power, number one, uh, and also uh, balanced by uh, individual human rights and and civil rights, uh, because we can we should never take for granted that uh, even if they start with the best of intentions, uh, any elite is gonna be able to. Uh, resist the temptations of uh, uh, of corruption and and self serving, you know, conflicts of interest.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so, I, I so in within our con- the term we use, uh, del- democratic engagement and deliberation, uh, carries the idea not just of you know engendering uh, norms of political fairness and promoting greater political competition and protecting the rights of. Uh, uh, you know, counter elites, uh, but also carries the idea of diversity, right? Uh, that mm-hmm. the way you incorporate or or inject diversity into policy making is indeed through democratic processes, right? Uh, the way you inject uh, alternative views, dissenting voices, diverse perspectives is indeed by creating these mechanisms for democratic participation. Uh, but that, yeah. So, I, I, but I see where you're coming from, Junya. I think. A lot of this is informed by the work of uh Sandow, I think, around the, you know how meritocrats can can be very exclusionary, right? How they can uh shut off conversations, how they see the world in very true, very uh uh how should I put it? Through very you know, through a very unidimensional uh uh lens. Uh that that is indeed a problem. Um but I, I, I think it's policy prescriptions or his prescriptions, philosophical arguments, more in the context of how do we create more Uh, recognition, right, for uh, Mm -hmm. equality of dignity, for equality of human conditions. Uh, And in terms of the implications for political decision-making and policy-making, I would say the first step, at least for Singapore, rather than to abandon elite governance or elite technocracy altogether, would simply be to right, uh, go as far as we can in terms of democratic participation and deliberation, and bringing in as wide a range of uh, alternatives and dissenting voices as as the system can absorb. I thought, Jinya, I thought you were going to raise a different criticism of uh, elite governance, which is, this uh, Peter Turchin's idea of elite overproduction, right, where Turchin argues that, right, we are producing far more elites than the system oh. is capable of absorbing. That's another critique of, uh, about the, but that, that leads to quite uh, different conclusions, right. Uh, but, but yeah, if you have a chance, you can discuss Turchin's argument.
0: I mean, that leads to kind of like, because you, you brought up Sando and one of the, um, points he also makes is that the Besides the fact that the, the Very clear ossification of Let's say if you're successful Then all the good virtues you, you take on And then if you're not successful Even though there's luck and fortune involved um, You're seen as mm-hmm. failing the system And then faults are individualized in that sense And he makes a point that Um, governments in the past were a lot more representative. I think it brings up the labor government Mm -hmm. example post-World War where um, you don't just have elites in the government. You have um, blue-collar workers who are part of the government who could speak to um, industrial worker labor concerns. So I I don't know how likely that is to kind of take shape anytime soon or in Singapore around the world.
1: Yeah, so this is where Turchin's elite overproduction comes in, right? I mean, where where would be the room for, for unionists, for social workers, for... Right, uh, you know, crafts, you know, people who do the crafts, where would there space for them in policy making or decision making or in politics, even uh, representational politics, uh, be if the education system produces so many elites, right? This problem yeah. of you know, excess, excess uh, supply of lawyers and accountants and, yeah. and professionals, right? So, indeed, I think Turchin's uh, view of elite overproduction leads very much to the tyranny of merit that Sandow rails against, right? Yeah.
2: I think this, um, this idea applies not just to the, the state, but uh, uh, non-state institutions yeah. uh, like the, the media. And so you know, beyond Singapore, uh, it's been documented in the US and the UK, for example, that the class profile of journalists have changed over the last century. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they that basically now middle, part of the middle class elite. Uh, with more in common with the ruling class than with the people that they're writing for and about. Yeah. Uh, certainly the same is true in the uh, Singapore mainstream media, yep. uh, down to the fact that uh, you know, the uh, uh, media companies actually replicated the government scholarship mm-hmm. system. Uh, to <laughs> it's <laughs> not just me. Yeah. very explicit uh, yeah. and very conscious bit yeah. to ensure that the next generation of journalists would be able to um, uh, be on par in conversation with uh, elite decision makers who are their main uh, news makers, right? So that they would be on the, the same wavelength and there would be a kind of a mutual understanding and respect. But what is the cost? Of course, it means that uh, you end up with a, a press call that is quite structurally um, uh, distinct from the ordinary Singaporean that they're supposedly writing for and about.
1: Mm-hmm. Because I guess the... yeah, so, elite over oh, sorry, so elite reproduction uh, becomes a lot more problematic when it also takes the form of as Charan says, elite reproduction, right? The elites uh, mimic each other and reproduce uh, among. Them. So, you, you Gina, I'm sure you know uh, this thing about homophilus uh, sorting and homo, you know, people of, of similar type marrying each other and producing, you know, uh, the very similar elites. Yeah
0: because on this team that the both of you mentioned about elite uh, overproduction and reproduction, it's kind of moving then um, looking at, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, in framing democratic deliberation and accountability slash engagement as being like a counterbalance to that. So with that, mm-hmm. the two related questions, the first one will be, um, I mean, to me, maybe the, the conclusion is kind of obvious. But what are your prescriptions for the ruling party to undertake this reform of politics? You make it a point to say it's a reform in politics and not just policies. But what are the specific prescriptions for the ruling party? And I think the second, pro- probably more important or interesting point, would be we all have a collective responsibility to build this, you know, engagement, this um, this civic kind of participation amongst our society. But how would you think um, Singaporeans should be involved in this process? And and acting as this check and balance against this elite overproduction, reproduction?
1: Uh, maybe I'll take a stab at it. In terms of specific political or structural changes we advocate, part three of the book uh, where we talk about democracy and accountability uh, addresses that quite uh, uh, explicitly. So we have some specific you know, changes we suggest to, or, or rather challenge suggests uh, to to Singapore's political system, right? Things around having an ombudsman, remaking the media system, uh, making making passion, right, and and, and activism uh, uh, far less punishing, even if it cannot always be rewarding. Uh, so those are specific recommendations we make to you know uh, what we can do with the media landscape in Singapore, the 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 the, 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 the scope for civic activism, mm-hmm. uh, the way. Or, or even electoral reform, right? Uh, I think even in the first couple of chapters, we talk about the very uh, majoritarian tendencies of the GRC system and how the GRC system tends to be, you know, once you capture it, it, it acts as a citadel, right? Uh, but we also highlight its pitfalls for the PAP, right? Because once it is lost, it is very difficult for the PAP to recapture it. Uh, and so that makes all the GRC, in, in other words, it, it's kind of. Ossifies the political system, right? It, it makes it far less contestable. It is uh, much more rigid. Uh, so, so there are specific changes that we can consider. Uh, may, maybe I'll ask Sharon to to, to take the second part uh, on on yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that it, it must start with an um, acknowledgement of the fallibility of people in power. You know, uh, yeah. regardless of how good their intentions are, yeah. Uh, I think that the wisest leaders surely acknowledge that uh, they're not perfect, they're subject to uh, uh, various uh, blind spots and cognitive biases and uh, you know, surrounding themselves with the wrong people and, and so on, right? And, and once you acknowledge that, then it is incumbent on you uh, to protect, not just allow, but actively protect dissent those who are different, who hold different views from you, and who are uh, willing to speak truth as they see it to power, mm-hmm. right, so it comes with that acknowledgement from the top, but of course we can't trust uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, uh, the people at the top to, uh, you know, you can't wait for enlightenment from below the top, even if practically that is the best way to achieve change, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it it has to therefore um be, be guaranteed by a system of rights yeah so so we need to um reject the the prevailing view in singapore which is that uh, well yes we accept free speech as long as right it's constructive it's not damaging it's retro. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the 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 boundaries have to be far wider, and it's only really if speech is uh, uh, you know incites hate. Then yes, of course the the, the state is obliged to uh, to step in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's serious uh, material threats to national security or public health uh, or, or defamation and so on, yes, of course there needs to be this needs to be legislated against. But we need to end the the this document. Dogma that um, that speech that just makes it inconvenient for government is offside, and that is the prevailing dogma. Mm-hmm. That uh, speech that just makes it uh, makes government slower or less efficient uh, is, is somehow counterproductive or not constructive. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, on, on the contrary such speech needs to be uh, protected by uh, uh, press freedom uh, civil liberties and so on mm-hmm. um, so so this I think is is uh, central to the to the solution
0: yeah. and I I was gonna jump on that because excuse me because you know absent the the active protection of um Dissent, the change in dogma, the widened spaces, right? I think you had probably, I felt, I've had different versions of this, but I think you probably put it more succinctly in the chapter where you describe individuals who might think of acting as a check of balance uh, who may be placed on black, white, on gray list, right? So maybe for the listeners, Maybe you can tell us what these lists are. The implications of being on a black, uh, black, white, or gray list, and in addition, how do we then? Um, I think you already mentioned some of this, but how do we then overcome the quote-unquote perpetual sense of um, precarity that you write about, who se- which seems to limit, you know, the extent to which individuals can civically participate and, and be involved.
2: Right. I mean, I use the um, the metaphor of uh, black list, white list, and the uh, gray list. Uh, you know, to to indicate uh, the sophistication of the government's uh, managing of uh, uh, of of elites, you know, cultural elites, uh, journalists, artists, and so on, uh, as well as activists, yeah. Uh, And yes, of course, I mean, the government says that, uh, no, no, we welcome um, engaged citizens, and so on, right, but uh, no, it depends where on the list you are, yeah, so, so if you are on a white list, that basically means that uh, you are um, uh, trusted not to challenge the government's authority over the political sphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you are on the black list, you are essentially an enemy of the state. Uh, if you're on the white list, you are therefore uh, allowed to take up institutional appointments. You're, you're, you are put on various permanent committees oversight committees you know the uh, the boards of uh, media corp uh, censorship review committee that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, if you on black list uh, it is not only are you not uh, going to be put on any of these positions you prob- you will not get any public sector job yeah, uh, so the serious It has serious material consequences. Uh, in fact, and, and it goes further, it, it it involves a system of shunning, right? Such that someone on the blacklist, uh, you know, uh, will be shunned by their community of practice and uh, potential ally because everybody knows that these individuals are, the black, are on the blacklist. It means that if you work with them, if you even praise them in public, if you share their posts, uh, you are in danger of being seen as a troublemaker, tainted by them. Right? And in between, there's this infinite shades of grey, <laughs> where uh, you are not fully a member of the um, uh, of the governing elite. Mm-hmm. Uh, neither are you uh, completely ostracized. Uh, But, you know, it will, your position on the gray list would be revealed by things like, uh, okay, does the Straits Times or CNA uh, interview you or not when you are one of the top authorities on the subject, uh, you know, (laughs) in in a particular story that they're doing, yeah? And and routinely, we find that, uh, uh, you know, in-depth features that are done by the, the the media uh, will include uh, quotes from uh, sort of the usual suspects of academics who are treated as safe uh, and conspicuously excluding uh, what we know of as the top authorities on that subject because it's quite clear that they're too far down towards the blacklist, too dark in a shade of grey, right? Uh, So similarly they would not be invited uh, to give talks at the uh, Institute of Policy Studies Annual Conference, right? Uh, they, they might even uh, find themselves mysteriously uninvited after being invited for a talk, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's a very fine-grained uh, system of uh, managing dissent. The, the, I, mean, I, would, I would like to use uh, a different analogy which has to do with uh, taxation, yeah? Uh, I mean, it, to me, this is an easy way to, to, uh, to ask ourselves whether, indeed, open conversations are rewarded or punished in Singapore. Yeah? We know that when the government is sincere and serious about encouraging risk-taking, out-of-the-box thinking and so on, it is very good at providing the necessary incentives. So think of the business incentives there are for entrepreneurship you yeah, think of the tax incentives and so on. Are there similar incentives for political risk-taking mm-hmm. or for social entrepreneurship? Obviously they aren't, right? Uh, it's uh, all downside, uh, there's no encouragement. Uh, and as long as that's the case, as long as we do not have uh, comparable incentives for, um, for political or social entrepreneurship uh, as we do for business, uh, we can't possibly say that uh, you know that Singapore actually is a place that uh, welcomes uh, passion of all kinds. It's a very selective uh, uh, incentive structure,
0: mm-hmm. and because we've been talking about this balance of elite governance and democratic deliberation, something that. Um, Donald Wright, uh, you you write of this in this chapter of this transition from a global city to a quote unquote um just city. That's a uh, just city. So tell us maybe what you meant by a just city, and maybe also <clears throat> based on what Sharon has shared, um, how do we get to a place where both the government and the public can learn to embrace kind of diverse, competing diverse and competing ideas? Then where there is a, a space where there is meaningful kind of civic participation and engagement.
1: Yeah. So, so we are all familiar with or, or, or we all think we're familiar with this global city construct right uh, and of course that's very much a product of neoliberalism right that uh, in, in, in neoliberal globalization uh, country borders matter a lot less uh, you know we think of them as we think of ourselves living in a borderless world and in this borderless world there will be some <coughs> hubs right uh, some global city which serve as hubs for talent for capital for For financial flows, uh, for you know, for for even the most exciting bits of our uh, contemporary culture. So you think of cities like New York, and of course Singapore aspires to be one of these uh, global cities. Uh, That's one perspective, right? Uh, Which we have either explicitly or subconsciously embraced uh, throughout the nineties, two thousands, right up to you know you would say the global financial crisis, and maybe even up to the pandemic. I think what the global financial crisis, as well as this pandemic, has shown is you know, it has exposed a real backlash against this form of neoliberal globalization. Uh, And and I think, Junyao, your interviews with Kenneth Poltan on neoliberal globalization were extremely helpful uh, for your viewers. Um, So I think as a result, coming out of the GFC, as well as especially after the pandemic, I think there's a, a real sense that globalization, as we understood it in the last 20 years, that era is probably coming to an end right uh, and so if so then it also raises deeper questions about how should singapore position itself in this new dispensation right in this new post globalization global order uh, and so this is where susan feinstein's idea of a just city uh, crops up she also wrote it, the 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 her book uh, the just city as a counter to you know the predominant or uh, in a prevailing notion of, uh, of, of global cities. And in, in a just city, you have three central ideas, right? That a just city is one which embraces uh, equity, uh, both in the social and its political sense, diversity in, in all its various forms, ethnic, uh, uh, spatial, uh, and so on. And finally, democracy. Sharon you know, has touched very much on what it means to be democratic, uh, protecting dissent, allowing a, a, a diverse array of voices and alternative perspectives. Uh, so let's, let me say something about equity, uh, diversity first, right? So so I think this pandemic has shown also how, you know, we may be culturally quite diverse, but actually it's quite, of, of a, quite a superficial form, right? Uh, you look at the large number of foreign workers. I mean, we want their economic presence, but we don't really want their presence in other forms, right? Uh, and we don't really see them as parts of our own community. So our diversity, our notions of multi... Well, we basically do not embrace multiculturalism, right? We have a very rigid uh, fixed view and Sharon has an ex- excellent chapter in the book on, 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 on indeed, you know, we really need uh, difficult, uh, a more mature conversation about, about, our, about our racial and ethnic diversity. Uh, on equity, also the pandemic has revealed that uh, our notions of equity does not extend beyond right, uh, Singaporeans. And of course, it's also exposed a lot of structural Spatial, uh, environmental inequalities. So, you know, while we have made, I think we can safely say that in the last 20, 30 years, Singapore is, you know, possibly would be, would, would, would be recognized as a global city. We still have lots of way to go in, in being a just city. It's a worthy, I think it's a worthy ambition because no city currently can claim to be a just city, right? Uh, so, for instance, New York and London, they score well on diversity and democracy, but poorly on equity you think of cities like Copenhagen or Stockholm or Amsterdam, they score well on equity and democracy, but much less well on, on diversity. I think, uh, you know, if, if there is a uh, ambition that is worthwhile for Singapore to pursue, as a city state, I would say that it is this just city, a uh, uh, vision, right? A city which embraces truly in all its forms, equity, diversity, and uh, democracy.
0: Yeah. And it's, a, it's an aspirational vision And both of you mentioned that the the election of G2020 feels like an important kind of um, milestone or point in time where it could could potentially trigger changes that will lead us to that direction. but if my mate, the both of you seem a bit more pessimistic, right? So in the book, you write that most Singaporeans are likely to, quote, outsource political participation to a small number of activists, end quote. So you also add that you we are not likely to sustain our current levels of interest in politics. And I think I wouldn't disagree, especially with the fallout of the election. It, that, that seems to be pretty consistent with what the both of you wrote. So mm. um, I was going to ask two questions. is What do you see as evidence of that? And... For someone who's reading a book, and it's, it's a best-selling book, right? So people read the book, what do you want them to take out of it? So what can they do after putting the book down, they've read, they understood, um, all this we've discussed so far, what can they do as a reader or as a Singaporean as a next step after reading a book?
2: Notice the room, the long silence. I don't think we've plotted it that far. <laughs> <laughs> so this is just a contrib i mean it's a contribution to a discussion right yeah. and i think uh, in, in with all such books uh, it's it's not it's not a, it's not a manifesto or a yes. blueprint yeah. right uh, and and what people make out of it depends on uh, the situations they're in uh, so you know, with uh, uh, we hope that um within the PAP, you know PAP loyalists and uh and leaders as well reading it, will start thinking about what's good uh, for the long term, not just for the particular set of incumbents that are now in charge of the party. And I think if, if they start thinking about it in the long term the way that we have, uh, I think many of our conclusions will be very compelling to them. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for civil society actors, uh, I hope they will uh, come away with the, uh, you know, uh, with, with um, ideas that we think are reasonable to push, right? Because we don't see these as particularly radical ideas in the larger scheme of things. Right? We think it's entirely reasonable, for example, to, to push for uh, um, an independent um, uh, elections commission. Right, we think it's entirely reasonable to revisit the the uh, Poor 65 promise for um, anti discrimination law.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Why not? Right. Even the PP considered that reasonable at one point. Uh, so so it is about um, uh, it is about putting out ideas uh, to the uh, to concerned citizens um, that we hope uh, will help them think of. Um, uh, you know, in, in areas that matter to them, uh, what might be uh, causes to push, mm-hmm. yeah? uh, and and to give them the uh, the the I guess the the moral support <laughs> of, of knowing that uh, they're not alone if they feel these yeah. gaps in society that uh, we agree with them. All there,
1: yeah, I I think uh, the way I respond to you, Junior, is to contrast the reactions to. 2011 and 2020, I think in the immediate, I mean, both elections, the PAP scored similar, more or less similar vote shares, low 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a similar sort of uh, reversal, right? In 2011, it was a nearly 7% re- reversal. This time it was uh, closer to 9%. So there was a swing against the PAP. But I think the mood post-election couldn't be more different, right? Between 2011 and 2020. Uh, in 2011, I think there was a sense that, you know, this party is quite capable of making the necessary policy adjustments mm-hmm. uh, to the issues that had caused widespread uh, disaffection, right? whether it's immigration, uh, housing, congestion in the transport system, a sense of anxiety. Uh, so, so, I mean, those, those were things which you, the PAP could do with its usual technocratic and policy fixes. And to a large extent, to give the PAP credit, it managed to do a lot of that. right? And on top of that, also made advances in uh, social spending and healthcare in particular, and I think that partly explains the the swing back to the PAP in 2015. Uh, but post 2020, I didn't get a sense that there was this optimism, there's this sense that if we apply our minds to it, if we just broaden the space for discussion, we will fix our, you know, the, the policy uh, errors. Uh, a because I don't think people voted this time on against the PAP or the swing against the PAP can be mainly accounted for on grounds of uh, these, you know, what Singaporeans like to call bread and butter issues. I think GE Twenty Twenty was much more around issues of political and moral legitimacy. and And I've been back in Singapore for twenty about for about two weeks now, and I've spoken to a you know maybe a cross section of about twenty Singaporeans or so. And the pervasive sense I get from them, with respect to policy and political reform or change in Singapore, is a deep sense of weariness, uh, a, a sense of almost frustration with the PAP brand and and, and the way it chooses to conduct uh, politics in Singapore, and also amongst obviously among my activist friends, a a deep sense of revulsion, right? That it's still the same old playbook of coercion of repression. Uh, So so I I think in that context, you can understand why uh, we are that pessimistic in the book, right? I mean, partly we wrote it in a pessimistic tone to protect ourselves from emotional disappointment, but also, but I think uh, we also sense, I think coming out of the elections that, that this is quite a diff- this was quite a different elections from 2011. Uh, I mean in 2011, there was a sense that these problems are not the, the unhappiness was not beyond the PAP's technocratic capacity to fix. But this time around, I think people's sense of disappointment, uh, frustration with the PAP uh, goes much deeper, right? Much harder for the PAP to, to uh, deal with. Uh, but having said that, I don't think it is beyond the uh, ideological ability or the uh, ideological reach. So we do both, I mean, the reason we both wrote this was that we thought that change in the, you know, in, in the chapters we suggested uh, are, uh, you know is both possible and desirable for the PAP. But just because something is possible and desirable doesn't mean it will naturally happen, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's possible and desirable for the US and China to have mutually beneficial friendly relations, but that doesn't mean it is the foregone conclusion, right? So it still requires an enormous amount of effort uh, on, the part of, uh, on the part of party leaders and, 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 and party members. I think in terms of what the rest of us should do, I think the least we can do is to come, I mean, the, and the reason we wrote this, part of the reason we wrote the, this book is kind of, you know, make a contribution to what sort of expectations should Singaporeans hold of the PAP, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, both in terms of policy and political change, and come G 2024 or 2025, uh, hold the party accountable to those expectations of change.
0: I guess it's a final kind of question, and to let the both of you have the last word as well. It's been some time since the book's been published, so I guess the question will be: Judging from the response to the book and reaction, has your pessimism been tempered or has it persisted? Like, has that has that? Um, <laughs> Has that changed the value? I know it's not a blueprint and a manifesto, but the title of the book is PAP V PAP. So I can't help but think that some would read it as um, a list of of, of recommendations to the ruling party. So has that has the reaction to the book kind of tempered or, or, or allowed pessimism to persist?
1: I think if we had written the book with the expectation that the ruling party will act on it, will read it, will embrace it, will uh, act on it, then we will be very disappointed and our pessimism will have swung into a uh, deep-seated cynicism, right? And we'll never, ever again write about Singapore. But because we didn't write with that prescriptive or even predictive uh, uh, mindset, I mean, our starting point was just we want to have you know shaped conversations? We want to spark conversations, right? So in that sense, it is very. I mean, I, I've gone to the stage where now it is very difficult to disappoint me when it comes to Singapore, because <laughs> I have such low expectations of the ruling party. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I take a, a a long view as well, right? I mean, uh, there was zero expectation that there would be even any acknowledgement of the book's existence
1: yeah. from <laughs> from anybody that matters. Yeah.
2: The ruling party. Yeah. Uh, it, it is uh, when I say a long-term view, I mean that uh, I'm hoping that 5G, uh, whoever they are. Uh, will be at least familiar with these arguments, not just from us, because, you know, in fact, what, what, what we're doing is a lot of it is recycling things that we've heard other people say too, right? I think this is this general desire in Singapore that, you know, that for want of a better term, is uh, looking for more liberal or op- Progressive approach to our, our nation building, and we hope that uh, these discussions will be um, internalized by the eventual 5G leaders, um, if the PAP is still in charge, right? Um, and, and based on those, uh, yeah, very modest expectations. Yeah, I'm not uh, disappointed either. I'm glad yeah. that in the um, uh, largely positive re- uh, reception from the, the wider public. Uh, I'm not surprised that um, uh, some readers misread it as predictive. That uh, you know they they feel that since we this particular book is devoted to the possibility uh, of reform and the direction in which that we hope the PAP will reform, uh, you know some readers feel that we are therefore um expecting it to reform or that saying that it is probable that it will reform but that is very far from the truth right uh, to to indicate that something is possible and desirable isn't the same as saying that it is probable mm-hmm. uh, our bets are not on bap reform it is just that we feel that it is our duty as, as uh, citizens to uh, uh to uh, to mount this intervention, right, in in, in current uh, uh, PAP discourse and, uh, and uh, you know, let them know that these are aspirations that are reasonable for Singaporeans to have, yeah, um, and, uh, you know, and, and we hope somebody is listening, but uh, at least in the long term, if not the short term, yeah.
1: And if not, we just
2: sell more books. Right? <laughs> and should should actually, actually, you know, yeah. it's uh, yeah, it would be wrong to to say that to interpret the the PAP focus as um, uh, as a signal to Singaporeans that that's where they should pin their hopes. Either yeah, mm. and I think more perceptive readers who are who have given up hope on the PAP uh, uh, correctly see this as in part. Uh, you know, a signal to Singaporeans that because these the changes that we are asking for are so reasonable, uh, so modest, so within reach, that if the if even this is beyond the PAP's imagination, then there is something fundamentally wrong with this party. This is a dysfunctional party and deserves to be rejected. And therefore, uh, you know, the very fact that the PAP uh, rejects. Uh, proposals as modest as ours shows that it is time for an opposition to come in. Yeah, so it can be read that way as well, right? Uh, uh, and, and I think uh, that is a more uh, um, that, that is a better way to look at it than as a kind of a, a prediction that the, um, that the PAP will reform in the short term.